Well, my friends, I want to encourage you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to the Older Testament book of Esther. Esther, and we are going to find ourselves in chapter 8 here this morning in a message I have entitled, The Great Reversal. But before we begin, let's pray together. Father, I know that while I sit here alone in a room by myself, people who are tuned in, whatever it is they may be, whatever state, whatever country, God, I know that they have great needs. And even now they have come here, God, because they are hoping that there is a word here from your word that will give them wisdom, that will give them encouragement and counsel, something that will give them direction in their life and hope. I pray, God, that uh, they will find that, that your Holy Spirit will work mightily in their life here today. And I pray at the end of this all, God, that they will shout out and rejoice in the goodness and the greatness that you are. So God, lead us through this study, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a child, there was a very popular song going on in which the chorus went something like this. You don't tug on Superman's cape or spit into the wind or pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger and you don't mess around with Jim. Well, my friends, I'd like to change that if I could. I suppose I'd need the author's permission. But my friends, I think we should add one more thing that you ought to never, ever do. And that is to mess with the people of God. And today, I'd like to show you exactly why that is. Why we can be courageous that anyone that messes with God's people we'll find that they are messing with God himself. For example, in Acts chapter 9, where we begin to see an introduction to the apostle Paul, we read in Acts chapter 9 verse 1, and we find he wasn't the apostle Paul yet. As a matter of fact, his name was Saul. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I mean, this guy hated the church when we meet him in Acts chapter 9. And so, my friends, we read, it continued, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, a name for Christians at that time, men or women, that he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And my friends, their end would be death. Now in verse 3 we read, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, this is a voice from heaven. This is God. And his instant thought might be, well, God, I'm serving you, aren't I? Oh, no. When you mess with my people, you mess with me. And in verse 5, he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, 
whom you are persecuting. God is that closely identified with his people that when you mess with the people of God, you're messing with him. Now, as we uh, remember chapter 7, my friends, we watched how God had answered the prayers of his people who were captives and in exile in Babylon because of their sin. And how this man had been raised up by the evil one to hate this fellow named Mordecai. I mean, he wouldn't bow down to him like everyone else around. And he determined that he was going to kill not only Mordecai, but everyone related to Mordecai. But what he didn't know is that Mordecai was a Jew. He was of the people of God. And we saw last week how God took this, this, this murderous, this horrific evil man and how he ended up dead because of standing against the people of God. And yet the people of God never lifted a finger. God working sovereignly, providentially, and powerfully through the prayers of his people. Now, my friends, you notice <laughs> that when we come to chapter 8, we see that, that there has been a great reversal that has taken place here. You see, you may recall in our previous study that this fellow Haman what was a man who would gather all of his friends together and then list through all of the glories of his life and his promotions and his wealth. But because he stood against the people of God. So here, my friends, in chapters 8 and 9, we see that God is not done Sure, the enemy of God is now dead, but there are still a few things that need to be dealt with. And we will see this, this as a great reversal. You see, Haman, no longer around to talk about his great advancements, we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, on that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. And the enemy of the Jews. And so whose are these things now? The very people that Haman wanted to slaughter. Now you will notice that this is what the Lord promised. This is exactly what God has promised the nation of Israel. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 22, which is an amazing chapter in and of itself, you may recall... It is the very chapter in which God called Abraham to go and offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. Now, he didn't want Isaac dead. He wanted Abraham's heart. And so would Abraham let go what is most precious to him to follow God? That is the question. Now, if you don't know what happened there, go back and read Genesis chapter 22. But when that event all had taken place, this is what God said to Abraham. In Genesis 22, verse 17, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And don't miss this. And your offspring, your descendants 
shall possess the gates of their enemy. My friends, with the power of God and the providence of God working, there will be a great reversal. And that's what we begin to see here. That now who is it that can go home and talk about their great wealth and riches? Esther. But you will notice that Esther is not of the same character of Haman to do such a thing. For she knows that the only reason she has what she has is because of the grace of God. Well, my friends, there's not only some new possessions <laughs> that are taking place here, you know, that, that Haman was so big to brag about, it's now belonging to Esther. We notice a couple of new positions. At the end of verse 2 here, we notice that Mordecai came before the king. And this doesn't mean he, he had an appointment with the king. It means this is now his new job with the king. He stands with the king as a counselor, as a servant to the king. The one who used to sit at the gate and refuse to bow to Haman is now in league with the king, my friends. So he is in this prime position of influence. So Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was to her. They were family. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over all of the house of Haman. Imagine what a great reversal. Refusing to bow, this man threatened to kill him. Now, this man is over all of his house. And so we see this great advancement taking place now. That God at work having answered their prayers. But there's still an issue that remains. They may have killed Haman. But what about the law that the king had written? What about that? Well, so not only are, is there some great advancement happening here. Now it is Esther and particularly Mordecai who are writing the laws. You remember Haman got a law written to kill and annihilate and destroy and pour lemon juice into the wounds of all, all of the people of Mordecai. Well, now who's writing the laws? And notice it begins with Esther's plea. Yet a second time she goes to the king uninvited. In verse 3, then Esther spoke again to the king, and she fell at his feet and wept, and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. Now when the king had held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Hmm. And you will notice, my friends, how much easier it is the second time for Esther. Remember, oh, fast in prayer for me as I go before the king. And now it is presented here as if this is no big deal at all. But you know what the difference is? You see, Esther prayed and she trusted God and she found God to be faithful. And once you know that God is faithful, your fear is transformed into courage. And in she goes. Well, verse 5 continues, and Esther lays out her plan. And she says, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, 
And if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order written to revoke the letters written and devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. But he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? And so here in verse 7, we find the king's permission. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And so while they cannot revoke Haman's law about slaughtering the Jews, what they can do is write one of their own. And notice here in verse 9, the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, of course, and the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and to the governors and to the officials in the province from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, and to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and language. And he wrote it according to verse 10, in the name of the king. And my friends, this pattern is how we pray. Mordecai writing out this stuff and people pass it around mean nothing if it's done in his own authority. Just like if you and I pray and we say, you know what, God, what I'd really like? Hey, God, could you help that person, whatever my friends, if we pray in our own authority, it means nothing. But fortunately for you and for me, Jesus invited us to pray in his name, in his authority, do we pray. It's not just something you tack on at the end of the prayer, my friend. We have access because of Jesus. And so he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. And then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. And so, my friends, we see Esther's plea, king who something please, Esther's plan, perhaps we could write a new law, along with the king's permission written by Mordecai in the name of the king and benefiting the Jews. Look at this. First of all, they can defend themselves in verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy and kill and annihilate and pour lemon juice and all of the little paper cuts. <laughs> it seems quite excessive, but what it is doing is matching what the enemy is about to bring. So to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. 
children and women included. Now, it's not attacking the women and children. Don't get that wrong. It is even women and children who can defend themselves. They have the permission and authority of the king. But it doesn't end there. Notice this, if you will, as it continues. They have the permission to plunder their goods. And on on one day, throughout all the provinces of the king, Ahasuerus, and the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. And so now that day approaches. But now what the Jews have is that they are doing this in the name of the king. And now everybody throughout all of this kingdom knows how the king feels about that day. So verse 14, we read that the couriers mounted on their swift horses and were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, Mordecai's decree here, my friends, now this this sounds like, well, you know, didn't Jesus said to turn the other cheek? He did. He said it to you. It is written and recorded for us, the church. But what did God say to the nation of Israel? Well, to Abraham, he made this covenant. This is a covenant for the nation of Israel. You recall it. I say it all the time. It's found in Genesis chapter 12. My friends, God promised to bless Abraham personally and make him great. And to multiply his descendants as we had just read in chapter 22, to make them like the stars in the heavens, many like the sands on the seashore. I know you want to say these are the days of our lives, but my friends, (laughs) he said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Remember last week we talked about this promise, I am rubber, you're glue, whatever they do, to the nation of Israel, God will do to them the great reversal. Well, in all of these laws being written, all of these things being laid out here, my friends, we find that there is now a great celebration. The party is no longer at Haman's. The party is everywhere. You will notice here in verse 15... Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in his royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Now you recall when when Haman had this law written and dispersed, the people's response was to be confused. What is going on here? Why why are we going to kill all of these Jews? But now here, Mordecai, who is a righteous man, comes out in the place of Haman. And the people rejoice. 
Now, this is precisely, by the way, what Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 10 says. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. And so, my friends, you will notice the Jews who have been mourning and fasting are now shouting with gladness and feasting. Verse 15, then Mordecai, who went out of the presence of uh, the king with these, these beautiful new clothes on in verse 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and in every province and in every city wherever the king's command. <coughs> Still not COVID-19. <laughs> And his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, and a feast and a holiday. And so everything has changed. They put their trust in God, and God acted to protect them from their enemy. Don't forget that, my friends. And so this, in this new celebration, we see that the Jews are feasting. But you will also notice that the other people took sides. Other people took sides. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews. We want to be a Jew today because things are going really well for the people of God. <laughs> and so some are siding with the Jewish people. Now, they, they didn't become Jews. This is a lot like, you remember uh, back in when, when uh, President Ronald Reagan had been shot? And, and there was this, this wonderful anecdote as he was going into surgery. Apparently, he looked around at all of the doctors and he said, I hope that all of you are Republicans. And their response to him perhaps reflected this very attitude in which they said, Mr. President... Today, we're all Republicans. We're all joined together in this good thing. And so some are siding with the Jews, but others, others are now in fear of the Jews. And you can count on these people to have been the very people who looked forward to the date, had written it big and bold on their calendar, that is the day we kill the people of God. But you know what, my friends? This is exactly what God had said to Israel. That when you are following me and going into this promised land and honoring me, in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 29, they are on, their, on the verge of going into the promised land. Deuteronomy 2.25, this day... I will begin to put the dread and the fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the reports of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Because, my friends, when you mess with the people of God, you're messing with God. Now, my friends, if you were to turn to chapter 9, I want to give you a summary of what happened. The day arrived, and Israel defended itself against its enemies. And what we find here in chapter 9 is a list 
of one battle, one city, one after another. But if you do the math, as I know some of you will, you will discover that on that day in which the Jews were to be destroyed, they had killed 75,000 people, the enemies of God and his people. 75,000 people. Israel, by the power of God and in his providence, vanquished their enemies. Now, my friends, in light of this, if we can just step back for a moment and talk about what the purpose of this book is. I mean, was this really all about Haman and, and uh, Esther and Mordecai? I mean, they seem to be the stars of what's going on here. But as we have said before, the providence of God is to use the personalities and the preferences of individuals to lead, guide, direct, place, and replace people to accomplish his will. And God used the arrogance of this man, Haman, who just could not let it go that this guy ain't bowing to me. And God used this to vanquish the enemies of God and his people. That is the story of Esther. God's providence and God's power. So shall we say it yet once again? Oh, we're gonna. When you mess with the people of God, you are messing with God himself. Because God so closely associates himself with his people that when you mess with the people of God, you're messing with God. And so in light of this truth, and this is where the, the, the real power is here, my friends. If you are a child of God, you have come to the point where you recognize you're a sinner. And the wages of sin is death. And yet, Christ died for your sin and rose from the dead. And you've put your trust in him. You are the people we're talking about here. That God so closely associates himself with you. When someone messes with you as part of the church, they're messing with God. So be courageous. Be courageous. No longer must you fear and shudder in the background when God has called you to act. Be courageous. And be prayerful, asking for God to work providentially and powerfully in your life, knowing that he hears your prayers and he answers your prayers. And finally, be faithful. Remember, I know you want to say, you know, if Mordecai would have just, how about this? If the people have God of God had honored him, and obeyed him, they wouldn't have been in exile to begin with. So friends, there won't be no trouble if you don't start no trouble. Be faithful.
Honor God in all that you do, and you will see his power working in and through you. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this message. Thank you for this truth that we have. This truth recorded, preserved, and now proclaimed for every one of us to hear. That God, we can courageously serve you, regardless of what people might say or do. Because when they mess with the people of God, they mess with you. Oh, God, build our faith, our trust in you to know that when you call us to act, we have the resources of heaven. And there is not a power on this planet that can stop us. God, I ask that you change our minds and our lives with this truth. And I pray it in the authority of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us here today, my friends. We'll see you back next week.